Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Lisa Jewell and Ruth Ware, live in conversation at the 2023 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion between two of the most talented and successful writers at work today. I think I speak for both Lisa and me when I say how incredibly delighted we both are to be here. Um, I remember when I was on my first panel at uh, Theakston's thinking what an honour it was. You know, was this going to be the pinnacle of my career? And to be back here as a special guest is just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. It is incredible, isn't it? You feel so honoured the first time you're brought here. Um, And then to, it's just you and me on a stage and all all of these hundreds of people. It just, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Talking about these funny people that we've spent a year making up stuff about. So thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for, uh, for listening to us. And, um, yeah, we're going to tell you a a little bit about our books to start off with, being as that is the reason why we are all here, not just to listen to me and Lisa gossip. Um, But, um, Lisa, do you want want to go first? I will go first. Yes. So this is my latest book. It came out yesterday. Um, This is a proof. So if you buy it, it's not going to have pink edges. I'm really sorry. Um, And this is my 21st novel. And None of This Is True is the story of two very different women who live in the same corner of North London. So far, so domestic noir. Um, And Alex um, Summer is a podcaster who lives in a very nice house with her two young children and her husband who spoils her. Um, And Josie Fair lives around the corner in a less nice house with two grown-up children and a much, much older husband. Um, and she works part-time as a seamstress. And the book begins when these two very different women um, collide, when they're both in a local gastropub celebrating their 45th birthday. So Alex is there with all her glamorous friends, um, and Josie is there with her much, much older husband, looking at Alex and thinking, she's very glamorous. Um, And then she notices that it says 45 on one of her birthday cards and thinks she's the same age as me. That's interesting. And then meets her in the toilets and they establish that they were born on the same day, in the same year, in the same hospital. Um, So they're birthday twins and they have this sort of slightly throwaway interaction about the fact that they're birthday twins. Alex goes home, doesn't give it another thought. Josie goes home, having Googled Alex's name and discovered that she's a podcaster and spends the entire week obsessively listening to all of Alex Summer's podcasts. She does a series of books, uh, a series of podcasts about women who've succeeded against the odds. Um, She also discovers that Alex's children go to the same school that her children went to when they were small. So she engineers a meeting outside uh, Alex's children's school. And during that meeting, she suggests to Alex that maybe she would make a really interesting subject for one of Alex's podcasts because she's had some a really 
interesting, difficult life, and she's on the cusp of great change. And Alex's initial gut reaction is like, no way. <laughs> Keep back, lady. You're really weird and unsettling, and you're a bit creepy, and I don't know why you've accosted me outside my children's school, and no, I don't want to make a podcast about you. I think that would be my reaction yes. too. Yes, so she has exactly the gut reaction that you would expect to have when somebody accosts you in that way. Um, but she's quite persuasive, Josie, and she talks Alex around into the, into the idea of just doing a trial run. And Alex, who has just come to the end of this series of podcasts that she's been doing, is actually, and you and I know what this feeling is like when you're coming towards a new, a new novel and sometimes you don't have anything in the bank. Bloody terrifying. And it's is the what that worst, feeling most is. terrifying <laughs> feeling when you've got nothing in the bank. Um, so she kind of just goes along with it. I really empathised with that. Yes, in, I know, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're kind of, yeah, you go for anything at that point. And, um, yes, yeah, so she tentatively invites Josie into her life to, to record this um, trial podcast and is immediately captured by Josie's story because, my God, it is so dark, it is so weird, it is so unsettling. Um, so the, the, the main crux of the book, the main narrative thrust of the book is this slow burn, unsettling, really weird, really creepy process of, of um, just things, strange things happening as Josie um, becomes more and more involved in Alex's life. But the narrative is broken up with um, these little clips from a Netflix documentary that was made two years after the events of the book about what happened um, as a result of, of this podcast. And actually, when I sat down to write this book, I've, that was kind of where I was going with it. I just thought, I want this book to be like one of those really bizarre Netflix documentaries that you watch. <laughs> you binge watch it, and you get to the end of it, and you just think, what the hell have I just watched? <laughs> Um, you cannot believe that these people exist in the real world and that, that people made decisions and allowed these things to happen and things just got so out of control so quickly. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's broken up these little scenes from a Netflix documentary, which is called, Hi, I'm your birthday twin. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's what this book is about. It's just two women. It's quite pared back. It's quite intense. It's very much sort of a slow burn, but you're kind of instantly in the story um, because of these Netflix. Yeah, you're sort of um, plunged. Yes, it? you know yeah. that even if things are moving quite slowly in those early chapters, you've seen what happens in the future in these little sort of flash forwards. I have read it, by the way, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a huge fan of Lisa, which I am, but it is incredible it's really really gripping thank you it's a real thank kind of, you Ruth. are you gonna read us a little I bit am. i'm going to read you well I, I had originally thought i would read you the bit where um where josie um meets engineers a meeting with alex outside her children's school but then i thought i've just told you that so you know that happens so i thought it might be more fun to show you a little bit of josie's home life um because we do see two sides of josie we see the side that josie shares with alex when she's recording her podcast let me see what josie's life is really like going on beneath the surface what's going on beneath the surface um so josie's elder daughter erin who's 23 years old still lives at home um so that's who erin is she walks past erin's room to get to hers the door is shut as it always is she can hear the squeak of the gaming chair in Erin's room, the expensive one they bought her for her 16th birthday that's held together with duct tape these days. Walter puts WD-40 on the base every few months, but it still squeaks when she moves. 
Josie can hear the click of the buttons on the controller and the muted sound effects leaking from Erin's headphones. She thinks about knocking on Erin's door, saying hi, but she can't face it. She really can't face it. The stench in there, the mess. She'll check in on her tomorrow, leave her to it for now. She touches the door with her fingertips and keeps walking. She acknowledges the guilt and lets it pass away like a cloud. But as soon as the guilt about Erin passes, her concern about Roxy turns up. They always come in a pair. She picks up the photo of Erin and Roxy that sits on top of the chest of drawers in her bedroom, taken when they were about three and five. Fat cheeks, long eyelashes, cheeky smiles, colourful clothes. Who would have guessed, she thinks to herself. Whoever would have guessed. She changes and washes her hands, heads back to the kitchen, opens the fridge, takes the meatballs from the fridge, a can of chopped tomatoes and some dried herbs from the cupboard, chops and watches Walter tapping at the buttons on his laptop in the window, sees a bus pass by, registers the faces of the passengers on board, thinks about Roxy, thinks about Erin, thinks about the way her life has turned out. When the meatballs are simmering in their tomato sauce, she covers the pan and opens another cupboard. She pulls out six jars of baby food. They're the bigger jars for seven-month-plus babies. They're mainly meat and vegetable blends, but no peas. Erin will not countenance peas. Josie takes off the lids and microwaves them. When they're warm but not hot, Erin will not eat hot food. She stirs them through and places them on a tray with a teaspoon and a piece of kitchen roll. She takes a chocolate aero mousse from the fridge and adds that to the tray. Then she takes the tray to the hallway and leaves it outside Erin's room. She doesn't knock. Erin won't hear but at some point between Josie leaving the food and Josie going to bed tonight, the baby food jars will reappear empty outside Erin's room. <gasps> That's nasty. <laughs> yeah, I have to say the baby food stuff did make me feel a bit yes. through. Yeah. <laughs> so that's I think that gives a very good flavour of the tone of the book and the reality of Josie's life and her her backstory and her history and um yeah. It goes so, to some dark places, doesn't it? <laughs> it goes to some very, very dark places, but it is a, it is a propulsive read, and um, uh, yeah, I hope you'll enjoy it if you pick it up. Um, but your latest book is, it's so different to my book, it's unbelievable. It's just... And yet it has something... But it's the same genre, but yeah. it's just completely different. So do you want to... Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about Zero Days, um, which is my new... Um, New thriller, I guess. It's a bit more... I mean, it is still a whodunit. There's a really strong whodunit at the centre of it. <coughs> and in fact, my main character would say that is the point of the book. She's out uh, to find out whodunit. Um, but I think the question that will keep people reading is maybe a little bit different. But maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, so Zero Days... Um, starts with my main character, Jack, short for Jacintha, she's a, a, a woman, um, doing an ordinary night's work um, in her job as a pen tester. Um, hands up who knows what a pen tester is? Okay, few hands going up, but not too many. It is a term that I had to get used to defining when I was explaining about this book to people. Um, and it's short for penetration tester, which sounds even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to do with pens. Um, and I, 
There is a reason that the term penetration tester does not appear in the blurb for this book. I wasn't too keen to find out what <laughs> having the word penetration in my blurb would do to my Google algorithms. I guess it might have brought me an entirely different kind of reader, so maybe that would have been a positive. Um, but a, a penetration tester or a pen tester is basically someone who is hired by companies um, to act as an attacker. So the idea is if you've got a secure building or a secure system you don't really know how secure it is until someone tries to break into it. And ideally, you don't want the first person who tries that to be a criminal. So once you've set up, you know, once you've made your system as secure as it can be, you can hire people who basically use all the same tools as real cyber criminals, real hackers, or in the case of my main character, Jack, real burglars, because she's someone who deals with buildings. Um, to basically test your defences. And then they come back, they say, this held up, this needs a bit of work. So that is my main character's job. And she's doing a routine pen test one night um, with her husband, who deals with the digital side of things, um, chatting to her over her Bluetooth earpiece. Um, she finishes up the job, walks out, and unfortunately walks into the arms of the head of security, who doesn't have any information about her. Jack can't get hold of the person who hired them, so she's taken into the police station. And by the time all this is sorted out, it's three in the morning. So she eventually gets home, and slightly oddly, her husband isn't picking up his phone, which is really unusual, because he wouldn't normally go to bed until um, she's sort of safely back. When she gets home, she finds out why, and it is because her husband, Gabe, has been killed. He's been brutally murdered, his throat has been cut, he's lying in a pool of his own blood. The police initially treat Jack um, <clears throat> as a grieving widow. They're pretty sympathetic to her. But as the narrative progresses, she becomes aware that they really only have one suspect, and that suspect is her. And she gets to a crossroad point where she has to make a decision. She's aware that the police are closing in for an arrest, and she has to decide whether she does the sensible thing, which is what I would do, because I am very law-abiding and very sensible, whether she sits tight and hopes that the police figure out their mistake, hope that they you know, work things out before she's convicted for this murder, or she can take matters into her own hands and try to solve her husband's murder herself. And that is what she does, partly because she's someone who has always had to solve her own problems throughout her life, throughout her career. She's used to being someone who runs up against difficulties and figures out the answer herself. And partly because she has this very complicated um, past with a police officer ex who has been very abusive and has kind of misused his powers after they broke up to sort of make her life as miserable as possible. Um, so for both those reasons, Jack decides that she's going to try and solve Gabe's murder herself and she effectively goes on the run um, because obviously walking out in the middle of a police interview puts a, a big target on your back. <laughs> so yeah, it was huge. It was huge fun to write. And um, I thought I'd read you a little bit, um, just a, a page or so, um, from the beginning. It's not quite the beginning. It's sort of about, I guess, about 5% of the way in. So at this point, Jack is in a, an interview with the two people who are investigating Gabe's death. And she's just starting to get the first inkling that maybe they're not taking her story at face value. 
Okay. So I'm just going to cough. I've got a frog in my throat. <coughs> okay. We're just trying to get as clear a picture as possible, DC Miles said. His voice should have been soothing. His tone was clearly meant to be sympathetic. But for some reason, all of my hackles went up. But I've told you all this. I've already told you. This is like... It's Kafkaesque. My husband is dead and you're asking me about my phone battery? And you got home when? DS Malik asked, as if I hadn't spoken. Her voice was kind but brisker, as if she sensed that sympathy wasn't what I wanted. I think it was sometime around 4am. I, I remember looking at the clock on the dashboard as I turned into our road. I parked and then I opened the front door and I found... I shut my eyes, remembering the horror. The image of Gabe's mutilated throat rose up in front of my eyes, and I opened them again, feeling a jolt of that remembered terror and disbelief. Well, you saw. No footwear marks? No sign of a struggle? None, I shook my head. Any footprints you saw, that was me. There was nothing. There's no sign of anyone leaving, just a smear of blood on the living room handle. I remember that because I saw it first and I knew something was wrong. And Gabe, how was he sitting when you found him? He was kind of slumped over his computer, I said. The numbness was stealing back over me and I felt myself beginning to shake again, not uncontrollably like before, more a strange, steady shivering in spite of the warmth of the interview room and the hot mug of coffee clasped between my hands. If it hadn't have been for the blood, I might have thought he was just asleep. He was... I swallowed, almost unable to think about it. He was still wearing his noise-cancelling headphones. I think whoever killed him Whoever killed him, they must have come up from behind and... I stopped. I couldn't say it. Something in my throat seemed to close up and I just shook my head. And then you did what? DC Miles asked. I tried to lift him up. I thought... I don't know. I think I thought maybe he'd passed out. Hit his head or something. I'm not really sure what I thought. I kind of pushed him back in his chair. He was really heavy. And at first I wasn't sure if I could move him. And then all of a sudden his weight shifted and he kind of flopped. And I saw... I saw his... I stopped. His neck, it was... I stopped again, breathing deeply through my nose, trying to hold it together. For a long moment, Malik and Miles said nothing, just watched me, trying to control myself. And then Malik pushed a box of tissues across the desk and said softly, I'm sorry, I know how hard this is. <laughs> so I have read all of your books apart from the first two. Sorry, I feel like that's a sort of tr true confession here on the stage with you. That's allowed. Um, and if there's one thing that I, I know when I pick up a Ruth Ware book, it's that I don't know 
what it's going to be because all your books are completely different. Do you, is that something you do deliberately? Is it, is it sort of a reaction to the book that you've just written that you want to though, like move into a completely different sort of landscape or completely different themes? Or Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I guess this book is different to some of my other books in that most of my other books are kind of whodunits and they're sort of, you know, they have... Um, often have a quite sort of Christie-ish kind of structure. There's usually like a sort of locked room mystery and a kind of closed cast of characters. And that's very much not the case here. This is a really open world book. Jack goes on the run. She's like, you know, up to Milton Keynes. She's down to the South Coast. She's playing cat and mouse with police. It is still a whodunit. And I think, you know, Jack would say that that is the that is the kind of the heart of the book. That's the only thing that matters to her by the end is who killed Gabe and whether she can get justice for him. And by the end, I think she doesn't really care about anything else. You know, she doesn't really care about her own survival. She doesn't see much point for herself. Um, you know, she's struggling with grief over Gabe's death and, and she's thrown everything into this kind of burning fire to figure out what happens to him. But I think that for me writing the book, and I, I think maybe for the, for the reader as well, the question that's kind of beating at the heart of the book, the question that's going to keep people turning pages, I think is whether Jack is going to make it out, whether she's going to be okay, whether she's going to find a reason to continue. You know, whether if she finds out what happens to Gabe, is she going to be all right at the end of this? So I think there's, there's sort of, there's two narrative kind of propulsions going on. There's what Jack wants to find out and there's what we want to find out. And this time they're sort of slightly, slightly different maybe. But yes, I mean, that, that is the thing with the energy of this book. I think with most of your other books, in, the, in, in a similar way to my books, they're kind of slow burn you lay the story out in a sort of organic, gradual, introducing new elements. With this one, you just hit the ground running with it. It's just you're instantly there's in the action. Of, yeah. there's, there's no setup of like the, the sort of domestic backstory or who these characters are or where they came from or how they ended up doing these jobs. Um, was that really weird to, to not give yourself as a writer that time that you need in those first few chapters just to work out who everybody is and how it's... Because you, you, you're just there doing the, the, the tech, the heavy tech yeah, stuff. Which know. is another thing I really want you to explain to how you know, how you, how you know all <laughs> well, that technical stuff. Well, I think we could both talk stuff. a bit about the jobs of our characters. Yeah. I think we've both gone for really fascinating themes yeah. in that. But I guess it was really refreshing to write a different pace book. It was a really fast book to write, just kind of... You know, because Jack is constantly doing different things all the time, she's running from problem to problem. You're right, it, is, it was a very different process of character building where, like you, I often spend a long time kind of figuring out who these characters are, what, you know, what their backstory is, establishing a bit about the setting. And there was no time for any <laughs> of that with this book. You're just kind of thrown into Jack's predicament, which is this kind of like bolt from the blue situation of, of her husband being killed. Um, and I guess, I don't know, I think I just, I am always sort of slightly writing against the book before. Yeah. And I'm quite obsessed with tech, so it wasn't, it wasn't a departure for me to kind of head a bit further down the sort of technology rabbit hole. But definitely, yeah, the sort of the pace of it, the structure of it, um, 
was fun to kind of to, to mix it up. So then just one last question about that, the sort of energy of the book. Does that mean that the book that you've just finished writing is... Uh, did you take the pace slower? Is it less? It's, it's still quite thriller-ish. So um, because of mine and Lisa, I think both of us, our sort of writings, we're often talking about mm -hmm. the previous book having just finished the one that we're currently writing, which is the case for me at the moment. Um, the book that I am currently writing is, it's a bit slower. It's still pretty action-packed. I have okay. to say, I think I'm in quite a sort of high-octane uh, mood. mood at the moment. <laughs> I yeah. love that. <laughs> but I feel that, I, I felt, yeah. th I mean, this has, it has so much of what I think readers love about your books in terms of the really, like, forensic characterization, the sort of feeling that you're just really intimately in touch with these characters' lives. You're kind of plunged into their families. But I don't know, I felt like you had tried to do yeah. something quite different. Can you talk well, it, about that? It sort that? of almost wasn't like I tried to do something different. It was My last book was called The Family Remains, I was here talking about last year. And The Family Remains was a sequel to The Family Upstairs. And there were four different storylines, two different timelines. Some people, some characters were in the first person, some were in the third person. There was a storyline in Chicago, there was a storyline in the south of France, there was a storyline in London, there was even a, a storyline in St Albans. <laughs> um, and it was just a lot. It was really quite unmanageable. Um, and in fact, talking about it was a nightmare. It was try trying to explain it to anyone was a nightmare. And so there was two things that happened when I sat down to write this. First of all, it was just like, let's shrink this down a little bit. Let's make this slightly more manageable and focus in. I thought, I'm just going to set this in one place. Um, and if any, if one of the worst things about writing the, the last book was the, 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 um, the time difference as well. When something was happening in London, I'd have to be constantly having to double-check what time it was in Googling, Chicago. Googling, what's the yes. time in LA? So, let, so let's just keep this nice and local. Um, and because I usually always write from the perspectives of more than two characters. I've usually got three or four characters' um, points of view in the book. And so I started this book writing from the two female characters' points of view, Josie and Alex. I kept waiting, because quite often the third and fourth people will turn up as I'm writing. And they just never showed up. The, these other characters never turned up, and I realised that I was writing a two-header, which I've never done before. Um, so that made it much less complicated as well. It was just like a Josie chapter, an Alex chapter, a Josie. Um, and so that was sort of, that informed it immediately, rather than me thinking, I want to do something completely different. It was just like, I want to do something a bit easier, frankly. <laughs> Make your um, life a bit more simple. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, uh, the, just before I started writing this, I accepted a commission from another publisher to write a book out of genre. Um, but what, what I had to undertake in agreeing to take on that commission was the reality of having to write two books in a year. Um, and I was like, I can do that. I can do that. I can write. I know loads of people who write two books in a year. I know I some people who write three books in a year. would have been, I can't do yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I sort of hit the ground running with this. Normally, so I started it in March last year. And normally when I start writing a book, and I don't know if you're the same, I'm kind of really kind to myself. I call myself a disciplined writer, and I am a disciplined writer when I need to be. And that's not usually in the first sort of two or three months of it's writing It's when you're the up book. against the deadline. Exactly. <laughs> 
And so usually when I start writing a book, I think, oh, I wrote 200 words today. At least I wrote 200 words. Or if someone phones and says, do you want to go out for lunch on Thursday? I'm sure I'll go out for lunch on Thursday. Um, but with this one, I treated it right from the beginning as if I was on a deadline, because I was on a deadline. It was like the deadline was already there. Um, so I, I hit the ground running. I didn't go out for lunch with anyone and was writing 2,000... 2000- the struggle is real, yeah. people, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I was writing 2,000 words a day from the start. I mean, it was literally just, um, which I think, again, because that's not how I normally write, because I normally give myself so much time to find my feet and work out who everybody is and, well, essentially to find out what the damn book is I'm writing, because I never know what the damn book is I'm writing until I'm halfway through it. Um, But with this one, I just, yeah, it just got written so quickly. um, And I finished writing it. I finished the first draft, in fact, just before I came to Harrogate last year. So I started it. So what was that start to finish then, do you think? I started it in March, finished it, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, so like July, gosh, that is quick. Which was, yeah, I was so pleased with myself. I thought I was so brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) And then I had to write the second book. Anyway, that's <laughs> that didn't quite go quite so smoothly. So yes, I think what it's done is just given just starting with the two different, slightly different approaches, and that sort of energy of writing as if I had a deadline right from the beginning has just. I think it makes it feel quite different to my other books, yeah. which um, which is nice. Yeah, you know, and this is my twenty-first novel, so it's nice to know. It's nice not to feel like you're in danger of falling into sort of formula yeah um and just sort of rejig re, redoing them can we talk a bit about where the books came from because i would love i know that you're not a huge plotter but sort of where where did the where did the germ of the two characters because they're so strong right from the beginning did they just walk onto the page where did this oh, idea yeah they come kind from? of did in fact the first person who i i had in mind when i sat down to write the novel i already had him and he was going to be my creepy character I mean, he is actually quite creepy, but um, it ended up being his wife, Josie, was Walter, who is Josie's much older husband. And I saw... Walter is quite a creepy character. He's very creepy, yeah. Yeah. Um, The whole family is creepy. (laughs) It's just a creepy family. Um, And I saw Walter, well, not Walter, but a man who I've adopted as my own, through a window. There's a little bit where, within the bit I just read, where Josie says that Walter's sitting in the window, staring at his laptop. And I just saw this guy through a window staring at his laptop in a flat in the back street of Kilburn. And I just, I, I don't know why I do this sometimes, but I just thought he looked like he was hiding a secret of some description. I thought he looked interesting. And I just had this sense that there was something there was going on behind him. And I had this image in my mind of a shut door and somebody behind the shut door. And I didn't know who it was, but I knew it was going to be dark. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to write it to find out who's in that apartment and why their door is shut and what the darkness is. So in fact, I had Walter first. And so Josie was sort of an afterthought just his little mousy wife but then actually Josie just sort of crept in and yeah she 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 took over and Alex I have to confess she started off quite two-dimensional for me um just like a a sort of a sense of what does a podcaster look like (laughs) I I don't know any podcasters where do they live what do they look like and I just thought well they're probably really glamorous and live in really nice Instagrammable houses in Queen's Park and um, so she was just this sort of cardboard cut out like glamorous (laughs) woman I've since met because of this book I've since spoken to lots of podcasters who are like no that's that's not what my life is like so she had to so yeah she I didn't really see Alex until she walks into the pub 
in the first scene, and you see her from Joe's, through Josie's eyes, this incredibly glamorous woman. Um, so Alex just built her a, a personality <laughs> as I wrote her. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's where they came from, really. Just kind of yeah, doing it on the fly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what made you want to write about penetration <laughs> testers? <laughs> well, so yeah, it was... where, where did that come <laughs> from? I think it was because I, I mean, like a lot of people, I listened to um, a lot of podcasts in lockdown. In particular, um, I have two um, school age kids. So, and my husband is a virologist. Um, so. She was, he was very useful during COVID times. <laughs> he was. He's a very reassuring <laughs> person to be married to. Um, but basically, during COVID, um, he just disappeared into his office, shut the door, and just basically didn't come out for about 14 months. And I was the one doing all the kind of, you know, all the homeschooling and the shopping and the endless cooking and the sobbing into the banana bread or whatever else we did for, yeah, sort of getting PTSD twitches at the moment. But um, I basically didn't write for a year because I, I couldn't. I just didn't have the time. And I sort of filled in the kind of space in my brain that would normally be sort of, you know, researching stuff and finding out about things and imagining characters by listening to podcasts. And I already had a lot of tech podcasts on my radar because I'd written two sort of tech-adjacent books, yeah. I guess. Um, the Turn of the Key is um, about a nightmarish smart house. That's that my favourite route goes. where. My favourite route where. A lot of people love like that one. That one. <laughs> um, and then One by One is um, a sort of, uh, I guess it's kind of a locked room mystery um, set in a, ski, a French ski chalet and um, a tech company has hired the ski chalet for a corporate retreat. So to write that book, I sort of had to figure out what a tech company looks like, how you go about inventing an app. So I'd been like reading all of these articles and listening to podcasts and interviews and things. And then over lockdown, I just sort of found myself creeping more and more towards the kind of darker end of the spectrum and um, listening to things about, you know, hackers and cybercrime. And, and it was during the course of this that I found out about pen testers. And it had never occurred to me before that this job existed. And of course, you know, once you've once it's suggested to you, it's completely logical. Of course, you know, if you've got a really high security building, of course, you need people to test that. But I was just completely fascinated by what kind of personality you would have to be to do this job. Because essentially, you are teaching yourself to be a cyber criminal or a burglar in the case of Jack. She has all of the tools that a real burglar would have, you know, all of the physical skills. She picks locks, she climbs walls, she understands how to, you know, trip locks. But at the 11th hour, having gained all of that very dangerous, very illicit knowledge, what makes a person decide to use that to make people safer instead of to enrich themselves? You Basically, you have to be quite a complicated, dual-edged personality to want to go that far into the criminal underworld, but no further. And I started thinking about, you know, what kind of person would this have to be? What, you know, what career path would have got you to that point? And Jack just sort of started taking shape in my head. And I'd already written a book about someone with a really fascinating career, which was um, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, which has a tarot reader at the heart of it. 
And I'd loved writing about someone who was so shaped by their professional choices. So I knew that it would be, you know, something that I would enjoy kind of finding out about these people and figuring out who they were. But then having sort of created this fairly sort of badass character with a very kind of pretty formidable set of skills, I... I'm sure you do this as well, Lisa, but, you know, (laughs) as writers, we're just such horrible people. You start to think... (laughs) I have to do something really awful to okay. her because you know she has she's she's a, a really capable formidable person. I have to give her a challenge that is up to those skills. And the worst thing for me apart from something happening to my kids which is not something I would want to sort of go there in my imagination. The worst thing for me would be losing my husband who is the love of my life and then even worse than that being suspected of his murder so yeah that was what I did I can't believe that your thoughts ever went to like you know we we can all imagine losing someone we love but like to then and what if I was suspected of killing them (laughs) well I think it's very rich for you to for you to say that because (laughs) when you take your characters I mean we both kind of we both delve into marriage in in very different ways in in our books and your yours goes to I mean Jack goes to a different very dark place to where you because there's two marriages in your book yeah. and neither of them but, are exactly but actually what was what was I think in the genre unusual about your couple is how incredibly functional and happy they were and not that we see them together for very long because he bloody dies in chapter two or whatever um but you can re- have... you can feel throughout how much they loved each other how well suited they were there were no, no dark shadows in their marriage no well I think that was and, it, which is know, like quite unusual in the genre the I domestic war the readers to you, feel gutted when Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I've had a few people who have, a few readers who haven't read the blurb, who have been like just poleaxed because they went into it not knowing that Gabe would die. And so they thought it was going to be this kind of two-handed novel about an amazing couple taking on the world. And then at the end of chapter one, it's like, yes. <laughs> poor Gabe. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, that was nasty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I've got these yeah, two married couples in mind, and I, I both so dysfunctional. Yes, but I've really ways. wanted this contrast between Josie and Alex. That was key to the novel, and one of the things I really wanted to play with was the one of the reasons why I chose the age of forty-five is because when you've had kids at forty, when you're forty-five, dependent upon when you had those kids, you could be in empty nest territory already or you could still be doing the school run yeah it's um, a real yes and it's how, one of those ages where your life experiences are so different yes, compared to where yes. you are yeah um so so that was the sort of a contrast between them that Josie's children have grown and um I was going to say gone but not quite gone um and Alex's are still small um and I also love one of because I'm a Londoner, born and bred, and one of the things I love about London is the way that very, very different sorts of neighbourhoods exist, cheek by jowl, um, and you're only ever a sort of stone's throw from a completely different Someone social in demographic. Entirely different world. Yes, yeah. and I love the fact that Josie and Alex live so close to each other, but in completely different sort of circumstances. Um, so I wanted all those contrasts, but I, the, the one thing I couldn't do. Um, in contrast to these really rotten relationship with Walter, who it's this isn't a spoiler if I say that is it a spoiler if I say how old she was when they met? 
Oh, no, I don't she's think, 13 and he's... pretty much do the maths from quite She's 13 and he's 40 when they meet. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, um, it's pretty dysfunctional yes. from the start. And the whole thing is dysfunctional from, from the ground up in, in that respect. But I didn't want then for Alex to be all like... Jack and Gabe loved up with her perfect husband because that would have just been her well, dead perfect husband. Yeah, let's, you know, <laughs> let's be clear. So, so Alex, despite her Instagrammable house and her perfect, she doesn't have the perfect life. Yeah, she's yeah. got Nathan, who is, I mean, he's incredibly generous. He's very wealthy. He works very hard. He provides incredibly well for his family. Um, he adores Alex. He buys, he gets this recording studio built in their back garden for her podcasts. Um, but he's a, um, he goes on benders. He goes on benders. So he's not a sort of habitual everyday drinker, but every week, every 10 like days, he'll go for a yeah. drink after work and then he won't come home for 48 hours and he turns his phone off and she doesn't know where he is. And uh, yeah, so that was a really interesting dynamic to play with this idea that he is a perfect father and husband. Until he's not. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. I feel like we could literally sit here all night just I there's so many questions I haven't asked you I want to talk about our writing process but have we had we the thing saying we haven't I know we are almost oh at, no we've so got so many more questions I think we're gonna do <laughs> one more we're gonna do one more quick question we have to just figure out which one we're gonna go for but then we're gonna be coming to you guys for uh questions from you so be thinking while we're now what, what, well, maybe what we, we should go for, for more of a general one because we've been talking very specifically yeah, about, about these books. particular books um, there is a question about research, but I feel a bit like we've already covered that one. We could talk about what's coming next. Oh, should can we talk you, about what's talk coming about next? That? Yes, I know let's yours do is that. a bit of a. What, what, can you, oh. what can you say? Can you give us a world exclusive? No, I can't. I'll get. I'll get um, sued. <laughs> You'll get NDA'd yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the book that I have, oh, unlike Ruth, who's finished it, I'm still rewriting mine. Um, yes. <laughs> Lucky you. She's going on holiday and everything. Um, <laughs> I am still rewriting this book that I've written out of genre. Um, it has been a learning curve. As I say, with this, I was just so delighted with myself, like knocking out a really good book in five months flat. Um, and this has been a real learning curve. I have gone to places I never thought I was going to go to in my fiction um, and realised I'm not good at everything. And um, in fact, God, you'd probably be really helpful with some aspects of it because you actually like research and I don't. I'm very good which at keeping is not me. a secret. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> you need to, I'd sign an NDA, Lisa, if I could find out about it. <laughs> Um, but yes, it will one day be finished and be good enough for people to read. Um, and it will be published the same day that this published. So it'll be coming out on July the 20th nice. last year. Something and I, for us all to look forward to. Yes, yes. Um, and, and then in September, I'm going to start a normal novel. And I can't wait <laughs> to start a normal novel. <laughs> I often find, though, don't you, it's, it can be a bit of a pendulum swing with yes. books. You have a, an easy one and a hard Absolutely. one. Absolutely. And, an and it, it's never, it doesn't ever seem to translate into how much people enjoy them. Yeah. I think some of my Oh, hardest, no, they never know. The readers yeah. don't know which ones you hated writing and which ones were yeah. fun. Which yeah. ones were like, blood out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you? What's your next thing? Well, so I have... I've sort of finished. I've finished the first draft of what will hopefully be my next book, unless, you know, my editors uh, write gently to tell me that it's not <laughs> going. No, I, I, think, I think I'm probably on safe ground. I'm always a bit sort of superstitious about talking about it at this stage um, because 
I don't know if you find this, Lisa, but I'm always writing and sort of editing the book that I've just finished at the point when the, the, the previous book is published and it's edited and it's at its most shiny and people are hopefully saying nice things about it. And meanwhile, this sort of rather ugly duckling on your computer <laughs> yeah. is not edited. It doesn't have, you know, it's got full of plot holes, doesn't completely make sense. Um, so yes, my, my current book is at a slightly ugly duckling stage, but I think I can tell you that it is, um, it sort of has a, a, a as its premise, um, my main character gets kind of reluctantly dragged onto this sort of couple's version of Love Island. Um, goes off to a, a beautiful kind of remote tropical island um, and then it all goes very Lord of the Flies. <laughs> wow. The, again, Lots of murders, Completely obviously. off on a tangent. I know, If totally you'd asked me different. to guess what Ruth Ware's next novel would be, that's not what it would have been. I love that. And love I can't you guess what yours is because you won't like, I'm not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> I'm not allowed to talk about it. But yes, I think, I, I think there's probably lots of questions about more general yeah, things. Yeah, so the, anyone got any questions apart don't be shy. from what is Lisa's next novel about? Yeah. Because she would have to kill you. But any <laughs> other questions, don't hold back. Stick a hand up, yeah? I think there's a mic coming. There's a roving, a roving mic. mic. Hi, I'm new to crime fiction. I haven't read any, so I'm really, really excited oh. about all the books I'm going to read after this festival. Um, I had a question about your translators. So you're both translated into lots of languages. Do you have any or much interaction with the translators? And how do you feel about, you know, how do you assess even whether they've kind of Oh yeah, that's a great question. Such a good question. Yeah, I don't think I've um, ever been asked. I've got a, my Swedish translator um, always sends me notes um, about things that she'd like me to feed back to her so that she can finesse it properly. And she will also, she has quite often my Swedish translator done a little bit of copy editing stuff that had fallen through the, the net when it had been through its first round of copy edits. But she's the only translator I've ever had anything to do with. The rest of I don't know. You don't know. I occasionally get like um, uh, communication from people on social media saying that they really enjoyed the Spanish translation or I mean but that you'll only know if they're also English speakers. That's the thing, yeah. I think. So occasionally you'll hear from someone who's an English speaker who's read one of the translations and and then they say it's good and once somebody said it was bad, but otherwise you just don't know. Yeah, no, it's there's I mean there's really no way to judge apart from just I guess, yeah, as Lisa says, going by how much people on social media seem to be enjoying it. I do occasionally get um, questions from translators. I think partly because translators are often more used to working with American English now. And so I'll quite often get questions about very specific Britishisms in my books or, you know, weird turns of phrase that they can't quite get a handle on what I'm trying to say. Um, some of my translators have done almost all of my books and I have a sort of you know friendly kind of nodding acquaintance with them to say thank you so much um, but I would say actually I don't know if this really counts as a translation the person who I have the closest relationship with in terms of the people who sort of help to send my books out into the world is my audiobook narrator um, who is Imogen Church who is amazing um, and she sends me quite a lot of questions and it's often I send her notes as well because occasionally there will be 
aspects of the written book that are quite hard to pull off in audio in terms of things like, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily want people to know who is saying a certain sentence or what the gender is of someone who is speaking. And so I'll put little notes in the margin to her saying, you know, Imogen, if you're reading this, this is supposed to be a line <laughs> delivered by so-and-so or, you know, please don't make this line too clear who is speaking. Uh, so that, that's quite fun. Do you have a regular audio No, book? no, I don't. I'm, I'm quite fascinated by the idea of having a, a regular a Yeah, regular she's narrator. done all of my books. So I think for many people, she is now She is the voice, the of, voice Ruth Ware. of Ruth Ware. Yeah. And sometimes people meet me and you can sort of see them trying to match the voice yeah. up with the... Like, <laughs> that's not what you sound like on the audio books. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, talking of audio books, I just have to say this because it's so bloody exciting, is that Nicola Walker has narrated... <gasps> Nicola Walker has done the narration on audiobook for this wow. one. So, yeah. That's Just proper fancy. Couldn't resist dropping that one in Do there. Do we have another question? Thank you. This is for Lisa. Uh, I was lucky enough to read None of This is True in Galley. And thinking about that in conjunction with the family upstairs makes me very reluctant ever to have a house guest again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering, did you have some bad experiences with people staying in your, in your home? No, and this is, the th this is the thing, and this is what the question that comes up so often, on, particularly on panels in, in my genre with female writers. Um, people can't quite get their head around the fact that the people who write these really dark bizarre characters and these awful things happening to nice people and go to these incredibly awful places um, in their fiction can just be these nice sort of mums. Perfectly normal. Really nice mums <laughs> sitting on a stage. Um, just, it's just, there. And, and I've never, have you ever, have any of your books ever come out of a place of having experienced something really bad that happened to you? I mean, I guess, obviously, like, to an extent, you write from your personal experience, because, like, there's a lot in this book about bereavement, and, you know, thank God I've never lost anyone the way Jack loses Gabe, but I have been bereaved, and obviously... Yeah, oh, no, absolutely, in. on an emotional but level, never, but in terms of... I would say most of my books come out of, like, fears or paranoia. Yeah, exactly, that I have. and that's... Yes, yeah, so that's it's actually exactly more, it, and there is... Um, it's very cathartic often. It you is. sort of work through these kind of, yes. oh my God, what if such and such happened? Or what if I was in this situation? So in fact, I've just remembered that one of the other things that inspired the writing of this book was in 2021, I was invited by another writer um, to be shadowed so that he could write a book about me writing my next novel. I which thought that mean... sounded terrifying, yes, by the way. Yes, it sounded terrifying. <laughs> he literally just arrived in my email inbox. I didn't know him from Adam with this suggestion, like, can I spend a year following your writing process? Process, um, and be party to your, you know, everything that happens to you on a creative and professional level for a year. Um, and that is one of those things where you just think, hold on a second, this, I've got a decision to make here and it could be a really bad decision. And I let him in. I he let this man into my life. You, but he did a great job. By he did account. a really lovely job. And I let him into my life and he was not weird and he didn't move in or kill, kill anyone or... <laughs> Or destroy my life, or any of those things. But exact, that's exactly it. It's it's not. You, you don't identity. write about nasty things that have happened to you. You write about the nasty things yeah. that that you fear that you might yeah. have just dodged a bullet. That the nasty yeah. thing that could have happened. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Do we have another question? Hello. Um, with all of your books, you you have such strong characters in them, and I just wondered whether you preferred writing 
the good characters or the oh. antagonists? I think you already know the answer to that question. <laughs> but nobody else does. <laughs> Do you, you want to go first? Or? Well, mind you, you've just written a whole book from the point of view of a really good person. I, think I would so, struggle with that. I think my, <laughs> so I think my weakness as a writer is actually that I love all my characters, even uh, the ones who are yeah. supposed to re be real shitbags. And I find myself making excuses for them. Yeah. And so um, The Death of Mrs. Westaway is written from the point of essentially a con woman. And it was supposed to be a kind of, you know, Ripley-esque sort of character who goes around shafting other people. And the more I wrote, the more I just fell in love with her until, you know, I was making up all these reasons why she <laughs> had to do what she did. Poor love. So um, I obviously... I love, I guess I just love writing from the point of view of people who are fundamentally quite different from me. Yeah. And people often ask me, you know, do you base your characters on people you know or on yourself? Are they autobiographical? And like Jack in Zero Days could not be more different than me. She does, throughout, does things that I would never do. In a, I mean, for a start, I could never be a pen tester because I'm a terrible liar. As soon as someone challenged me, I would just be like, oh, you're right, I shouldn't be here. I'm so sorry, I'm going to go home. So for me, I think that's, that's more... It's not so much about whether they're good or bad. It's more about trying to figure out who they are, what makes them tick. What's your answer? Yeah, no, I, I really find writing nice people challenging. Um, but you need nice people in this genre. You absolutely have to have nice characters in this genre. And they perform an absolutely vital function. Um, but the... Because I write from various points of view, there's always going to be someone shady whose head I'm living inside for parts of the book. And that is the best fun for me. So writing Josie in this book, every time it was time to get into Josie's head, I was like rolling up my sleeves. I loved your incel rubbing my hand. character. What was his name? Your incel. Oh, Owen. Owen yes, from Owen. Invisible Girl, See, my he's incel a really character. Good example of someone who I loved. Yes, yes I loved him as well and I did make excuses sort of for him. Baddie, but, you and know. then Henry Lamb from my Family Upstairs books. Um, Noel from Then She Was Gone. Um, even, even the mother from The House You Grew Up In, Lorelei. Um, who, yeah, wasn't, she wasn't evil, but she was so damaged. Um, so those are the most fun to write. Nice people are really difficult to write. I think we might have time for one more question because it's like two minutes too. How do you know? I've got my phone here. Oh. It's <laughs> <laughs> I'm like reading the time on my filing, so I've got to... <laughs> I thought you thought you had some like high-tech invisible watch. Sadly, no. No. Do we have a do we have a one more question? Closer. One more person. Hi. Um, I was wondering again about characters. If you start writing about a character and you're not really sure who they are and where they've come from yet, do you ever get a character that you really don't connect with and you don't know what to do with them? Do you then cast them aside and start again, or do you persevere? Mm. I suspect our answers might be quite different on this, because I tend to not... I, most of my novels are from a single narrator point of view, oh, yeah. although I've yeah. done one which is from a dual narrator point of view. Um, if it's a secondary character, which is more often when it happens for me, um, quite often what I do is I sit down and ask them to write me a letter or I rewrite a key scene from their point of view. And that kind of helps me to figure out who they are, what makes them tick, why they're the person they are. When it's a point of view character, I generally don't have too much trouble figuring out who they are. Um, sometimes it comes up in edits that 
I know who they are, but I haven't sort of effectively got aspects of that on the page. My editor will say, I don't quite understand why she does this, or this part of her character isn't making sense to me. But to me, it's always crystal clear. It's like, I just know them like I know myself. So that's just a question of me explaining it better. But I'd love to know with multiple narrators, is that different? the, the, the narrators in my books are always there because I desperately want them to be there because quite often um, voices one and two I sort of I know that they're going to be there from the from the start of writing the book but the the, the oh, other the characters, characters they, they'll turn in. up so like when I was writing the family upstairs I had I had Libby and I had Lucy and I just suddenly realised I needed a third character to tell me what had happened in the house in Chelsea. Um, and then Henry Lamb just appeared on the page just when I needed him. So my characters are just there because I really need them to be there. And if, if, if I'm not connecting with them, I, and then it's the same with everything I put onto the page because I write without a plan. Everything I put onto the page, I have to make it work. And I will find a way to make it work because I really don't like cutting stuff out. And I don't like going backwards. None of us do. <laughs> yeah, I just think no, you're 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 here for a reason, and I need you. And and if I'm not connecting with you right now, I just need to work a bit harder to find out who you are and let you evolve on the page. So no, I don't think I've ever just binned a character. I have sometimes pushed a character slightly. So you know, with Walter, he was supposed to originally be my main character, and I found his wife more interesting. But he's still a huge part of the book. But you no, I don't think I've ever binned a character. What a great question to end yes. on. Lisa, I have loved sharing a stage with you. I feel yes. like we could have talked for like a full extra hour. There was so much more I wanted to find Should we just carry out. on? I mean, you can all go. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be just in the bar doing basically the exact same of this, but with more wine. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to see us. <laughs> thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.